Hey friends, this is Ashley coming to you before this episode starts. I just wanted to let you all know that I have a newsletter. It's also called Boss Barista and you can find all of our episodes along with full transcripts and articles about each episode at the newsletter. So go to bossbarista.substack.com and all of this stuff will just end up in your email. It's kind of like magic. So again, bossbarista.substack.com to find all of these episodes along with additional content. Thanks for listening and on to the show. Hey friends, welcome to Boss Barista, the podcast about workplace equity and employee empowerment in coffee and beyond. I'm Ashley Rodriguez. This episode is probably the most coffee-heavy one we've done in a bit, so if you're ready to get in the weeds about how coffee gets to you, strap in. In September of 2022, I read this article called Eight Questions Sustainability-Minded Roasters Should Ask Importers. It was published on Daily Coffee News, and it was written by Jim Noque, who's our guest for this episode. Jim Noque is a managing partner at Mighty Peace Coffee, which is a social impact coffee importer that works with farmers in Congo. Jim is originally from Congo and wanted to use his affinity for business to bring economic opportunity to the country. At one point, Congo produced a sizable amount of coffee, but due to instability and violence, that figure dropped substantially. Agriculture shifted in favor of mining and extracting minerals for use for things like phones and electric cars. Mighty Peace Coffee is looking to change that by connecting Congolese farmers to coffee roasters and drinkers and to promote peace and sustainable patterns along the way. This takes me back to Jim's piece. In it, he poses eight questions coffee importers should consider if they care about the future of coffee, which we talk about in this episode. So often we read or are told that a coffee, or really any food or agricultural product, is sourced ethically. But how do we really know that? Jim notes that there are 27 different actors involved in getting coffee from the farm to your cup. How can we ensure that all those folks are treated and paid fairly? How do you know that the price the roaster says a farmer was paid was actually paid to the farmer? We ask these big questions and more. Here's Jim. Jim, let's start by having you introduce yourself. Hey, Ashley. I'm Jim Gokwe, managing partner of Mighty Peace Coffee. We're a social impact coffee importer, and we specialize in coffees from Congo. And Congo is where I'm from. Did you grow up with coffee in your life? And not really, to be honest. I mean, my parents drank coffee pretty much every day, but it wasn't necessarily a big part of my life growing up. You know, I know they had their Nescafe. So frankly, growing up, my exporter of the coffee was mostly Nescafe, the instant coffee that's very commonly uh, consumed across the Africa. So my parents would drink uh, instant coffee, but it was just their morning ritual and then didn't really think about it beyond that. So day to day as a kid, coffee was not a major part of my life, actually. When did coffee start becoming part of your life? So four years ago is when it became part of my life to the extent as how we know each other now with Mighty Peace Coffee. We know we founded a company in 2018. But before that, I'll tell you when I first came to a coffee farm, actually, it was when I was in high school. I was living in Côte d'Ivoire, the Ivory Coast at that time. 
and part of a field trip, we actually went to a coffee and cacao farm. So that was my first time actually seeing that. And it was Robusta, which I learned later. So that was my first time as a child actually seeing, you know, where the coffee came from. Because before then, again, to me, coffee was Nescafe, came in in powder. <laughs> That's all I knew. Oh, wow. Yeah. And uh, yeah, cause it's not really part of, of our culture, to be perfectly honest. The average Congolese doesn't really, besides the instant coffee, it's not really a part of culture. But I do know that culture evolves. So, you know, I know there are people working to kind of change that and make coffee part of the culture and a lot of coffee shops and cafes popping up. But day to day for the average Congolese, you know, you know, drinking one or multiple cups of coffee a day is not really um, a common thing. So you said you started Mighty Peace Coffee in 2018, and obviously that's a coffee company. So what was the impetus for you folks starting this company? Definitely. So Mighty Peace Coffee, the, the founding partners are myself. You know, I'm in, I'm in New York City. We have Linda Mugaruka. She's a, our chief quality officer. She's based in Bukavu. And JD and Liza, also founding partners based in Madison, Wisconsin. And the, the why for me kind of goes back, comes, always comes back to Congo, to be, a, be perfectly frank. So um, again, Congolese immigrant, you know, came to America when I was um, 17, you know, 36 earlier this summer. So I've been here a little more than, than half my life. And I've always wanted to find a way to, to connect Congo and America through, a, through an ethical business. That's always been something that, that's driven me, being an immigrant here. And, you know, you kind of get frustrated about how, you know, your country is presented in the media. So I always ask myself, you know, what can I do so that, you know, the world and the media has a different perspective of Congo? So at first I really thought maybe I'll be in media myself and, and write new stories about Congo. But then I realized, you know, that wasn't really my calling, but I've always loved business. And the second idea was how can I create a business that connects Congo and America in a way that will actually lead to this, these positive narratives? That was always in the back of my mind. But again, you know, it's, it's tough to be in business <laughs> unless you're the yeah. wealthy. So it's an idea I had, but honestly, it'd be, I was not really doing much for that idea. You know, I had you know, regular corporate jobs, and uh, but also doing some uh, pro bono work for the African Chamber of Commerce because I wanted to find a way to do business in Africa, Congo in particular. Then finally did a trip to Congo in 2017 with the Chamber of Commerce. And the idea is to really do a lot of research on the ground and figure out, you know, which industries can really help Congo emerge. So again, Congo, a population of about 100 million people, but the average Congolese is very poor, despite Congo having the potential to be a, a pretty wealthy country. So the idea was to research which industries could actually kind of help turn the tide. And I came back with a report with focusing on agriculture as an industry that could really do that for Congo, whether it was coffee, tea, anything you could think of, you know, Congo's soil really has very arable land. I could facilitate that. So my goal was to bring back investors from New York, take them to Congo, and basically a trade mission where they invest in different projects and initiatives across you know, different agricultural products. Again, coffee was part of it. Uh, that initial plan to bring investors with me didn't quite pan out. <laughs> Around the same time, the State Department said, if you're American, don't go to Congo, it's not safe. And again, I'm Congolese. I was in Congo a month, few months ago. I'm like, you know, I understand, you know, like, Maybe the headlines say it's not safe, but I was just there and I was safe. I have family there. You know, they're safe. You know, the State Department said it wasn't. So the, the investors I had in mind did not want to go because, again, rightfully so, they listened to the State Department instead of me. I get it. You know, if you don't know, I can understand it could be very scary. But just a sidebar, again, I'm in New York City. I think if, you don't, if you're not in New York, you think New York is very dangerous. But frankly, I feel very safe here. With that said, I also know there's some places I wouldn't go, right? We, we accept that some places can be safe where we're with pockets of violence. And I think I wish people accepted that for Congo and Africa as well. But long story short, that, that plan didn't work uh, because, again, the State Department said don't go to Congo. It's not safe. But around the same time, I met JD, again, one of the founding partners at Mighty Peace Coffee. And he had produced a, a documentary called When Elephants Fight. 
to the documentary, very powerful. If you haven't yet, encourage you to watch it. Very powerful, very emotional. But in summary, it called out big tech companies like Apple and Intel and basically called them out in the sense that the, the materials they need for the cell phones, laptops, you know, computer chips, a lot of that comes from Congo. And maybe Apple and Intel don't go to Congo directly to, to buy those minerals, but their suppliers do. And a lot of them indirectly cause chaos, violence, and sometimes straight up war to access these minerals. So the documentary called out these tech companies said, hey, you know, clean up your supply chain because you're causing chaos in Congo. You can build a business without exploiting Congolese and their minerals. In their defense, Apple and Intel vowed to clean up their supply chain, issued press releases and all that. There was good press around it. So I think the initial feedback in America was, hey, you know, we're doing good work, um, making real change and, you know, cleaning up things in business and mining. But the feedback in Congo was what, what will help us the most is jobs. You know, maybe, you know, when you do your advocacy, your film screenings and your, you know, your, your advocacy for us in, in America, you, you think you're getting good results. And maybe you are, but day to day, we don't feel that. What will help us the most if you help us find jobs? We have great coffees here. That was actually the president of a cooperative that said that, a coffee cooperative. Yeah, we have great coffee here, but people are afraid of Congo because they always hear about conflict minerals. If you really want to help us, help us find bars for our coffee. So we talked with JD about this and, you know, we said, you know what? Clearly coffee is an opportunity here. You know, Americans drink a lot of coffee and Congo has great coffee. You know, it can't be that hard, right? <laughs> Famous words. It can't be that hard. <laughs> I know. And then, and then you look back and you're like, oh, wait, this might be harder than we thought. It's, it's really hard. It's really hard, you know, from logistics to quality control to really basically introducing people to a coffee from a country they either never heard of or that they, they, they didn't know had coffee, right? So, so but that was the, the starting point. That's really why, that's why I was giving you the background first, because that's really what drove me to coffee, you know, those early conversations and that desire to, to really connect Congo and America through business in an ethical way. No, that totally makes sense. And I think it's interesting that you almost reverse engineered the way that your business works, because I think when you hear from a lot of roasters or a lot of importers or things like that, they kind of start with this coffee first mentality and we tend to think that that's the reason to start a business or to start something just in general like oh I love x y or z so I'm going to start a business around it and and you said this earlier your social impact business you started with the mission to really elevate what was happening in Congo and bring more business opportunities to the people who are asking for them absolutely and even though we started with with the impact first also the name mighty peace coffee because you know, the coffee comes from post-conflict zones. But, you know, coffee was, uh, you know, right after, right? So even though we had the idea, you know, coffee for, for peace, impact, and prosperity, shared prosperity, the next step was we actually had, we actually had to get uh, somebody who knew coffee. Because for full transparency, uh, you know, I didn't know much about coffee. <laughs> Until then, you know, beyond, you know, drinking coffee once in a while in college to stay up late for exams and things like that. But really was not part of my, my day-to-day. And didn't really know much about, you know, the industry as a whole. Until then. Uh, but we need we had to get somebody actually new coffee, new coffee quality, and really was based in Congo. That's really when, when Linda came in, and we actually read an article about her in the New York Times. And the New York Times had featured her because um, she was the only woman at Saveur du Kivu, which is a, a local coffee festival there. And she was the only woman uh, cupper there. They featured her as kind of a, a next generation leader. And we read, you know, we, we read about her in the New York Times. We're like, you know what? We have to get in touch with Linda. And because, again, of our networks in Congo, we were able to make that happen, connect with her. We share the mission of, you know, what we want to do with Congolese coffee and, and America and really changing the narrative and giving opportunities. And she was on board. She kind of shared that same vision and really that desire to do a lot for the Congolese coffee sector. She shared that vision, you know, 
of basically coffee being that vehicle for for peace and economic change in, in Congo. You wrote an article for Fresh Cup magazine called The Myth of Congolese Coffee. And one of the things that you talk about in that article, which everyone should go read, it's a beautiful article. But one of the things that you talk about right in the beginning is someone tells you like, oh, I didn't even know you could get coffee from there. And then you also talk a little bit about market access and how little coffee like is actually consumed from Congo in the United States. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about why it is that we don't see as much coffee from Congo in the U.S. Like, why is it still why? Why can people still tell you things like I thought Congolese coffee was a myth? That's how you start the article. Definitely. And that was very it was very eye opening because it was, you know, because I was actually taking a class. Right. So my, my if I'm taking the class, I'm expecting, you know, the people to you know, know a lot more than than I do. But I also realize that it's the case, except when it comes to certain countries, because like Congo, for example, unfortunately, Congo is one of those countries where most people don't know much about it. The why is, I, I want to say it's, it's, it's complex in the sense that my research, Congo actually was known for its coffee back in the 70s and 80s, both Arabica and Robusta. One thing Congo struggles with is, I guess, the, the gift and the curse of its mineral wealth. <laughs> you, if you read about Congo, a term that will often come up is a geological scandal. Literally, every mineral the world needs, Congo has most of it. For, and I mean mineral for industrial development, right? So if you, th- if you think about, you know, whether it's a military complex, you know, we have a lot of uranium. We have a lot of copper that, you know, a lot of, you know, militaries need. We have, um, you know, gold, diamond, again, coltan for, for your smartphone, cobalt mm-hmm. for your electric car. So literally the minerals that the world needs to industrialize and, and be modern and push the envelope of technology, Congo usually has most of it. And, and it's very rare. That's why they call it geological scandal, because basically the resources the world needs, the world needs, Congo has them in bunches. And because of that, you know, some of, there was a lot of discoveries around those minerals in the 70s and 80s. And that really, uh, basically, it changed the government's focus. You can make money much faster and easier by just, you know, digging and selling minerals than you can by investing in agriculture. We can take years to be profitable, right? So there was a significant decrease in investment in agriculture because there was an opportunity there to make a lot of money easily and quickly through through the mining sector. So that's that's really part of what led to a steep decline in, in Congo's coffee exports from the 80s on. So that that's part of it. And then, again, because of that mineral wealth, Congo has faced a lot of conflict and instability as well. Because, again, mm-hmm. the world needs those minerals. And if you pay the, the fair market value for those minerals, you know, everybody's iPhones, laptops, and cars cost a lot more, right? So there's a lot of incentives to, to make sure that you're able to, to get these, these resources as freely and as cheaply as possible. So what really ha- literally happens is there are conflicts. Basically, those minerals are stolen. They're smuggled to other countries. So the, the minerals have caused these cycle of violence. Again, the violence is not just around the minerals, but it's a big part of it. The cycle of violence and a lot of instability. And because of that instability, there's been many cases of farmers literally leaving their farms, fleeing farms, because again, there's been no investment from the government. There's been really no support. So farmers have had to fend for themselves. What's happening in Congolese coffee uh, sector right now has really been driven by you know the, the private sector and you know nonprofit organizations, because it really has not been a, a priority for the, for the government. Overall, like when you like it is like it has been for other countries whose sector has, has seen that growth. That's a good point because I think when we look at other countries, there's a lot of government buy-in. Like I just wrote an article about coffee in Colombia, and the Colombian government is very heavily invested yeah. in coffee, for better or for worse. I don't want to talk <laughs> too much about the FNC because th- that can go in like eight different directions, yeah. um, which is the federation that 
controls coffee production in Colombia. But government buy-in is a huge, huge deal. And I was looking back at your article and you were you wrote that, and this might have been, I think this is from 2019, Congo contributes 0.014% of to global coffee exports, which is really, really small. So I'm wondering how companies like yours, like Mighty Peace, are trying to increase that market share and how like organizations like yours are trying to give more resources to people. Absolutely. And, and one thing I forgot to mention earlier on was giving you the backstory about Mighty Peace Coffee. Again, there's desire for impact, but also uh, was a lot of, of literature around that time talking about you know global warming and basically the need for, for other sources of, of coffee, right? Because unless, you know, we all move to a synthetically produced, you know, coffee, we're going to need another source of coffee, right? We need other countries to kind of kind of fill the gaps that may be caused with maybe Brazil, Colombia, Kenya, Ethiopia, if they produce a little less, who else is going to, where else can the world get this coffee from? So that was also part of a, a problem we identified early on, like the world needs other, other sources of coffee. So that was part of it as well. So that's a challenge. We believe Congo can be a solution to that, like can be one of the countries kind of makes up any production gaps because of reduction in other countries. So that, that's part of it. And that's kind of how we see the, the long term. We're in this for the long term. We think in 10, 20 years, 30 years ahead of time. You know, what if what if we're consistent for the next couple of decades? What would that mean for, for the Congolese coffee sector, the local economy, and for the world, really? Even though I'm, I'm, I'm very proud to be Congolese, I will admit that it's, it can be challenging to work there because, again, of all the, the some of the issues that I mentioned earlier, a lot of our coffee gets smuggled because of that, actually because of the high taxation, because of the lack of infrastructure and, and support. Sometimes it's actually easier and more convenient to, you know, take a take a boat ride to, across the lake to one of our neighbors, whether it's Rwanda, for example, even the mountains to Uganda, can be easier to smuggle that, get paid quickly than to go through the legal process to export to your Congolese coffee. So the people that work in Congo, is just because they, they definitely see the value, potential, and its commitment. But if you wanted to, you know, if you wanted a uh, coffee that was easy to, to, if you wanted an easier environment, Congo would not be your first choice. So we're there because we really want to be there. And we believe that the, the, the long and short term impact will be tremendous, both locally and, and internationally. Something that I think often gets overlooked is how powerful market access is. So even yeah. going back to what you were saying about we we need jobs. Yeah. And in coffee, it's like we need buyers. We need yeah. people who are going to buy this coffee. So yeah. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you build that market access. A lot of hard work and research. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. We literally, okay, who are the coffee roasters in America? And and no exaggeration, just attending every trade show we can, um, calling, emailing, stopping by, dropping off samples. So it's really been hard work and, and hustle, you know. And, you know, doing the best we can in terms of, you know, advocacy and, you know, um, getting some, you know, press and things of that sort. But it's really been a hard work and hustle. I wish I could say there was a we had a secret formula. <laughs> but really but it's, 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 it's awareness. It's 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 doing what you do. It's writing about Congolese coffee. And I have to imagine that part of writing the articles that you have or just being at trade shows is to hopefully spark curiosity for someone to say like, yeah, someone to say like, hey, this is something I want to learn more about. Exactly. Curiosity, interest, interest and awareness. That's really the goal and what we do. So, um, again, we're four years in, so we're definitely, you know, we're seeing the traction slowly but surely. But I can tell you, you know, it's, it's definitely challenging, especially if, you know, first you don't know where Congo is. You don't know that Congo has coffee or maybe you have Congolese coffee in the past. It was years ago. You didn't like it. So you kind of don't want Congolese coffee anymore. So I think it's, it's really kind of dealing with all those possible scenarios, people that don't know. 
people that had a negative experience or really don't want to try anything new. So I think that's, uh, that's those are some of the different challenges we can face. But it's really about, you know, raising awareness and driving curiosity. You know, there's a lot of great coffees out there. You know, there's a lot of great coffees out there from all the coffee producing countries. And we just want Congo to be at the table. You know, as you try coffee that you think, you know, what, what should I have next year? You know, what should I offer my in my cafe, you know, next quarter? We just want Congo to be an option you consider because the coffee is good and it's high quality. And when it's from us, we know it's ethically sourced. But yeah, it's really about driving awareness and um, shaking hands, talking to people and telling our story and our mission. And, and over time, you know, if people try the coffee, they like it. Even if they don't buy it right away, at least they know that Congo has coffee of good quality. And we can, over time, remove any barriers to giving Congo a chance. Because even if you don't, you, don't, you don't buy it from us directly, as long as Congo become an option, even if you get it from somebody else down the line, it's a win. Because I truly believe that the more there are people that bring in Congolese coffee, the more we all win, the more the country wins, because the, there'll be more awareness where people will hear about Congolese coffee, not just from us, but from others. It's definitely a long journey. We, 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 you know, we expect it to take some time, but we, we work diligently every day and, and try our best to you know, introduce you know, roasters to the best Congolese coffee we can find. I think one of the lines that I was really struck by in your article about the myth of Congolese coffee was the idea that because a lot of people maybe haven't had uh, coffee from Congo or maybe are still trying to learn about it, there's a lot of relational expectations. Like it tastes like this or it tastes like a coffee from this region. And you mentioned at the end, like your goal is for Congo to stand on its own. Exactly. So for people to understand, like this is the flavor of coffee from Congo. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what these coffees taste like. I mean, obviously that's a big question because you can't (laughs) summarize a whole country. Um, And I always say this, like, I'm like, you can't just say that one country tastes like this, but like when we, when we get to that point, when we get to that X point where you hear roasters talking about Congolese coffee as its own, like, what do you imagine them saying? Yeah. And one thing I'll say even before answering that question is I really like the, the answers that, that I've gotten when people didn't know which coffee it was and they just tasted it with an open mind the results were always great because I think if you, you maybe you've had a negative experience in the past, there's a certain country, even if the coffee you're tasting now is different, your opinion more than likely is probably still affected by that first negative experience. When, you know, you can't add any uh, prejudgments or pre- prejudices that Congo may have in your mind that the coffee pretty much is, is a stellar option in most cases. And uh, one thing I'm, I really love about our coffees is that it's very versatile and very diverse. So, so I, I like to think about, you know, so for example, some of our coffees, very fruity, you know, fruit bomb is, is a definitely common descriptor from our popular Mependo coffees. So if we talk about, you know, blueberry, strawberry, raspberry, those are flavors that come out. So a strong acidity, but we also have the, the, the milder coffees that, you know, are more chocolate, caramel, vanilla. So I, I really feel like, you know, when I was talking about being a solution to some of the industry's problems that Congo can address, you know, if you're looking for the high acidity, you know, standalone coffees. If you're looking for a coffee for a blend, you know, I really think, you know, Congo, and again, I know, you know, our coffees that we bring in are very versatile and they address, you know, if you like the, the high acidity, the fruity coffees, or if you like the milder coffees, like Congo has that. And it's not necessarily trying to be, um, uh, uh, what's that expression? Jack of all trades. Yeah, jack of there all you trades. Go. <laughs> like master of none. <laughs> I think there's definitely sometimes a negative perception of jack of all trades or a coffee that you can't fit into a box. But I think at this stage, you know, and frankly, you know, I, we really don't want Congolese coffee to be just in a box. You know, we we, we appreciate when, you know, we're uh, your special summer or fall offering because the coffee stands out so well on its own. But also, if you want it to be in your espresso blend, that's great, too. You know, so 
I really want, you know, Congolese coffee to not be in a box for as long as possible. People can experience the different flavors, different tastes, and, and basically have different needs met by Congolese coffee. I think something that you said that was interesting, and this relates back a little bit to a conversation that I had a couple of years ago with Sara Nguyen from Nguyen Coffee Supply, is that people have perceptions of what a coffee tastes like that are radically different from what they taste like today. So Robusta is kind of a prime example of that. And I have to imagine, too, coffees from the Congo are similarly affected by these negative perceptions. And I'll even, I'll use Robusta just because this is something I've written about. People immediately turn off when they hear that word. Like they're like, Robusta is bad. And it's like, have you had Robusta lately? Do you know its potential? And even thinking, like you said earlier, about climate change, where we grow coffee is going to change. The types of coffee we are growing is going to change. Places that used to grow coffee may not grow coffee again in five or 10 years. So we really do have to think about how agriculture is changing. And it seems like you're very acutely aware of this and you're having to almost change people's perceptions of something that is no longer true. Yeah. How do you do that? I think the first step is kind of understanding, you know, where their current perception stems from. Is it based on hearsay, things they've read, heard from other people, or things they've experienced themselves? So, you know, I think first kind of understanding where that stems from, and then you know, being open, to, being open to having you know multiple conversations, you know, tasting a lot of different coffees, and also being patient. We understand it's going to take time. If you know your your first ten years in coffee, you know, you 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 basically avoided Congolese coffee or coffees from the Great Lakes region. You know, understanding the why behind that, and then you know, give you time to um to be open to changing that the, that those negative ideas towards Congo, for example. So it's definitely being patient, providing information, context, because a lot of times you don't know what you don't know, right? So if, if you don't know something, I, I can't fault you for not knowing it. But if I know it, it's definitely my become my responsibility to share that information with you. So again, a lot of patience, a lot of conversations, information sharing about the context, the realities, the past, the the vision for the future. And also tasting a lot of different coffees <laughs> comes down to that, right? Tasting the coffee, understanding and understanding how we got to where we are and where we want to go in the future. So you recently wrote an article for Daily Coffee News titled Eight Questions Sustainability-Minded Roasters Should Ask Importers. And what I really loved about this article is that sustainability is often painted as one thing. It's often painted as environmental sustainability, which we obviously yeah. talked about because environmental sustainability is really important. Coffee and climate change is very much affecting where and how we're growing coffee. But a lot of the questions that you ask are a lot more focused on economic sustainability and just viability for people to be able to live their lives. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, I feel like I'm asking all my questions in this phrasing. Can you talk a little (laughs) bit about, um, but maybe share with people why these questions are important and maybe we can even go through some of the questions. Absolutely. So so those eight questions, you know, sustainability minded research ask importers, this basically is a summary of some of the questions that I've been asked in my first four years of Mighty Peace Coffee. And I want to give credit to some of the, the, the roasters, really, that whose questions really pushed me and pushed us as a company to kind of better understand, you know, what roasters that care about sustainability, kind of what information they need, the extent of the transparency, right? Like how, how, like how much information is too much? What is the right amount of information? And what information specifically? So just to give a shout out to, you know, Amari said at Joe Coffee, you know, Scott and Paul at, at, at On The Origins, O'Connor at Equiano Coffee, those are some, some of the roasters who really inspire some of these questions because they ask those questions even sometimes before I had all the answers, right? So, so, so those questions really are the result of conversations 
from people that have been, you know, Mighty Peace Coffee clients and, and trust us, but really pushed us in the beginning and still do by asking us questions because I know they care about sustainability. They care about their impact as buyers and roasters. And it really pushed us to to um, to to make sure that we're able to to dive to dive in and get the correct answers and understand the the realities, understand what a roaster who's not in Congo what they need to know, what they want to know, right? And uh, in terms of the questions, sustainability, like you mentioned, I think it goes beyond the environment, and I think it really starts with with the people. You know, is that something like is is it worth it for you to do it again next year? If you grew coffee last year, did you make enough money to do to want to do it again next year? Because I think if, if you lost money, we have to understand as people, you know, like the average person is not going to lose money forever and do the same thing over and over, knowing they're going to lose money. So first understanding the economics, you know, is, is it profitable to, to make, is it profitable to be in the coffee industry right now? And I think a lot of times, particularly when it comes to, uh, to coffee farmers, people talk about cost of production and, and uh, break even. But I think, you know, nobody gets into business. No one break works even. to break even. <laughs> exactly. No one works to break even. And I think what you just said, and I just want to make sure that we highlight that a farmer might look at how much money they made and be like, did I make money? Did I break even? Did I lose money? Is so common in coffee. It is so much more common than you think it is. Yeah, exactly. So it's just really important to know the numbers as best as you can. Because even, you know, the, you know the, the, the farmers, for example, and the cooperatives give us those numbers. In a lot of times, not readily accessible, right? So that you know, with talk about talking about you know fuel costs and travel costs and things like that. So, but do your best to get those numbers and understand what your break-even point is and what profit margin you need to basically be incentivized to do it again next year. So that's that's very important because, you know, I think uh, sometimes you know it's it can be a privilege to think about you know long term. Right. You, you can afford to think about five years down the line if you know you know what you're going to eat today, tomorrow, and next week. But some of the people, they don't know that, right? So it's important that they're financially sustainable right now. And, and we have to make sure that as, as, as a coffee stakeholders, we address that, that they, they make money now, that we don't tell them, you know, work with us now and maybe in five, five years you'll make money. You know, that's, that's not enough. Again, for me as a business, you know, you know I, I don't, you know, we don't want to break even this year. Right. <laughs> you know, we want to make money. We don't want to break even on a bag of coffee. You know, cafes don't want to break even. Roasts don't want to break even. Neither do farmers or cooperatives that support them. One thing I, I hope that this article can do is really for us to view sustainability, to, to almost be selfish about it in the sense that, you know, you have to see that sustainability is good for you. Yeah. So I think when we try to appeal to people's, um, you know, philanthropic side, there's a limit to how philanthropic people can be. But if you see it as something that serves you, that's self-serving, you're more than likely to, to make it part of your, of your habit and processes. But if it's something that's a nice to do, people aren't as consistent if they think it's just a nice thing to do. But if they view it as something that's, that they need for their business to grow over time, more people will be sustainable and care about that. But if it's still a nice thing to do, oh, you know, let's, let's help those people when we can. I think we're not going to be sustainable and this is not sustainable for, for the industry overall. Something that you mentioned in the article is that there are at least 27 stakeholders scattered around the coffee supply stream. And before I started recording with you, I laid out for you what I thought the <laughs> the supply chain looked like when I was a barista. You have this idea that coffee grows in coffee growing countries. An importer brings that coffee to a coffee consuming country. A roaster buys that coffee and a barista makes it. Like that's what, four people in there? But no, 27. Those are 27 people that need to get paid. Those are 27 people or 27 actors, maybe even more, that are either extracting value or 
I guess extracting value. The only people I think that are actually putting value is the farmer. Um, maybe, maybe, uh, I don't know. That's, that's controversial. Uh, but let's get past that. Um, but the idea is that all of those people have different amounts of, I'm not sure what the right word is. I guess power is kind of the right word, but power over what that system looks like. And one thing that you identify specifically is that roasters actually have a lot of power. Roasters have a ton of power because they're the tastemakers. They're the people who are making menus for what coffees they're offering. They're the people who are roasting coffee to whatever excellence so that consumers want to buy it. And they're the direct line to consumers in general. And what I really love about this article is that you point that very, very directly. You say roasters have power. They have the power to ask these big questions. And if they make these questions part of their everyday working like practices when they're buying coffee, they actually have the power to change a lot about how coffee systems are currently implemented. Yeah, absolutely. So like how, like, so let's talk about one of these questions. So one of the ones that I think that I was really struck by is how, how do you pay producers? And it's actually really two questions. Do you pay producers directly? And if you pay producers through a third party, how do you verify that these producers are actually receiving what they earned? And I was wondering why are these questions important? Yeah, they're, they're definitely important. I guess the, why they're important is, is because, um, as I mentioned, there's, there's so many stakeholders and, and it's very easy to, um, you can hide the money if you wanted to. <laughs> right, so exactly. It's because there's so many uh, people involved in getting coffee from a farm to a grocery or a coffee shop. It's very easy to basically hide the money across the line. And in the end, the farmers and producers are actually produced out of coffee get the crumbs or get nothing really so it's important to be able to understand how people get paid and to verify that they did get paid because let's say for example us you know we we pay a cooperative you know we, we wire the money to a cooperative again we do that you know through a bank through the bank account you know we, we wire the money to the bank account and we know the producers that were involved in our coffee well even though we trust the cooperative just as, as business and our own due diligence we also do have to verify the farmers themselves got paid because again not not in our case but you know we've heard stories of you know, a coffee being, you know, purchased and basically all the people in the middle got paid, but the, but the farmers actually didn't get paid at all. So it's very possible to hide that money and, and basically say you didn't, you didn't receive it when you did, or just basically not give the full amount say, you know, the payment was late. We never received the full payment. So, so we definitely keep track of, of when we pay, but we also verify and we have, because we have our team on the ground of the Slenda, Fidel and, you know, Echo, we can literally call producer and say, Hey, you know, we wired the money that day. Can you confirm that you received it? You, you received it when? How much did you receive? So we actually are able to track that. And we think that's that's important, not because we don't trust the cooperatives, but just because it's due diligence. We want to make sure that that what we say we do, we actually do and verify. Because we, we hate to be in a situation where, you know, we are we just rely solely on, on the, on on the word words. Of, of Yeah, exactly. We need to verify for ourselves to know what's really happening. This is not totally an analogous example, but it's an example that I bring up a lot, um, and I think it kind of applies here. But in Philadelphia, Todd Cardmichael of La Colombe Coffee wrote an op-ed about how people should be paying $15 an hour, like this was a living wage. Mm. And three years later, I believe, um, it might be two years later, it came out that La Colombe did not pay their baristas $15 an hour. The fact that like we didn't even verify that, that this person wrote yeah. this article, we took it for granted. And and later they would go on to say that like, oh, the $15 per hour is their base pay plus tips. That's misleading. And, mm. it, it, and it goes to show like if this happens in, in plain sight with yeah. 
you know, customers going up to baristas and assuming that they're getting paid $15 an hour and the barista is in front of them. They can't ask them, but we don't. Like, imagine how much this is happening when you add 27 actors in the middle of that. Exactly. So I think that these questions are really important. And I wonder, as a consumer, because a lot of people who are listening are, are simply consumers of coffee. They don't necessarily work in the coffee industry. How can consumers be better equipped to buy coffees with kind of these sustainability questions in mind? That's a great question. And I think it's definitely tough because, you know, we as individual consumers, I think we we have so much in our mind, right? Mm -hmm. It's unreasonable to really expect, you know, somebody who just wants a cup of coffee to really understand basically the socioeconomic uh, context of of where their coffee comes from. Because, you know, why stop at coffee? Why not avocado? It's a sidebar. I watched a documentary recently about avocados in Mexico, and it was basically some of the issues we face in coffee they face an avocado as well. So so I think it's, un, it's it's unreasonable to expect somebody who's buying, you know, coffee, avocados or whatever to really understand the socioeconomic context of everything they consume. It's, it's too much information. It'll be too much work. So I really believe it's the role of roasters, which which I, I mentioned in the article, they have so much influence and power as they source the, the coffee to really do their due diligence and make sure that the process by which the coffee got to them, that the people they buy it from, that their values match theirs and that, you know, if somebody goes to coffee shop X or coffee grocery X, that because of certain values, that those values are true across the board. So I really think the onus falls on the actual, on the businesses so that, so that we reduce the amount of work the end customer has to do. So if you go to, you know, coffee shop that you like in your neighborhood, you know, you should be, you should go there with the confidence that they're doing their job to to provide you with uh, ethically sourced products, you know, that that the people that, you know, made the croissant were paid well, that the people that produce the coffee were paid. So I think as businesses, we we really have to to do our job and communicate the information, you know, to the end user. So if you you care about that and you go to a coffee shop, you know, that information is available. You you shouldn't have more homework to do because you want a good cup of coffee. The the onus is on the the businesses to do their job so that the people that that buy their products can do so and, and basically with a peace of mind. I do a lot of editing work and sometimes I'll read lines that are just like, and this coffee roaster buys their coffee ethically. And I'm like, what does that mean? That doesn't mean anything unless you tell me, unless you open, like you said, you open your books and you show me. So I think it's interesting that your questions are really specific too. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that was really on purpose because I didn't want it to be, and again, it's only eight questions. There's a lot more questions, you know, maybe there'll be a part two as, you know, maybe we'll have to revisit this. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, those were the main questions that I think, you know, if you have those answers, you basically can, can get a sense as to, you know, whether those processes match up with, you know, as a roaster, how you see yourself. You know, I think those questions around price, gender equity and, and processing and things like that. If you have those first eight answers, I think you get a good sense about, you know, really the, the true ethics or behind the coffee you have. And and one thing I want to say, you know, I definitely don't want, don't want to feel like... Um, they want to be judgmental, right? right? Yeah. You know, so, I, so I don't want you to come up, to leave reading, reading this article, and if you ask your importer the question and they don't know that you say a bad importer, you're unethical. It's, that's really not the point, but it's more so an opportunity to learn. I think the more questions we ask, the more we can learn. And if you don't like some of those answers, then it's an opportunity to to be better, right? So I think it's key that you know, no matter what uh, answers you find through those questions, that you don't you don't judge yourself or judge your partners. But more so, you take it as a, as a data point to kind of understand where you currently stand and how far you have to go to kind of be who you want to be, you know, who you want, your your, your roastery, your coffee shop, who you want to to represent who you want to be. And hopefully those questions can guide you in terms of, uh, you know, from the green side of things. But whatever the answers are, I don't want you to feel bad 
and feel judged because I think, you know, being judgmental about processes doesn't help anyone. Mm -hmm. So it's really, you know, just more so a learning opportunity. I love that you mentioned that. That's a good point. It's like a data point, It's a, it, which is like a good way to think about it is that you don't want, you exactly. wouldn't dismiss a data point. Like you would say like, this is where we're at and this is where we want to yeah. get. This is like the way that we measure that. Exactly. What are some projects that you folks are working on at Mighty Peace right now? So a couple of products we're very interested in. Uh, first, you know, I want to give a shout out to, to Linda Mugaruka. She's our chief quality officer. And last year she became Congo's first woman Q grader. And I've been saying that since last year. And, you know, our, our goal, first and only woman Q grader, and our goal is that over the next few years that she would not be the only woman Q grader. So there's definitely a lot of work in terms of ups, upskilling and doing a lot of education locally. Because even though we, we take pride in, you know, paying farmers, you know, the wages they need to be sustainable and reinvest in themselves, you also understand as a ceiling how much a farmer can make. But if you're an agronomist, you're a Q grader and have more technical skills, it really raises the ceiling to your earning potential. So we want to do a lot more education locally, you know, targeting women, because we definitely believe, you know, making sure that women have have capital is key to development and Linda will spearhead that. So a lot of education to have more women understanding, you know, coffee quality and really getting the, the certification and education they need to move up in, in the value stream. So that's, that's one product we're interested in. And that's, you know, from an education and human capital standpoint. And another one, you know, probably going to launch in, in Q, late Q1 next year. It's, um, it's called the off-grid box. And it's a, it's a box that's basically a, a, like the size of a small container and it's produced by these engineers at, at MIT. And basically through the technology it has, you're basically able to um, provide clean water and clean energy to 1,500 people. So our vision is to really install these boxes across the Washington station communities where we work. Because unfortunately, cholera and other waterborne illnesses are still the realities in the region because unfortunately, the average Congolese doesn't have access to clean water. Mm-hmm. So that, and, and that's even in the, in the cities, right? So in the rural areas, you know, forget about it. You really have to walk miles get clean water. As a result, you know, people still get really sick or sometimes die of cholera and other diseases. And and the idea is to make sure that, you know, every every coffee we 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 import and the people behind it have access to that clean water and energy in their communities. So that's that's definitely a long term project. But we're gonna install the the first box early next year. And the idea is to spread that and eventually be able to say that, you know, all of our coffees, every farmer we work with has access to, to, to clean water. And then that we can, if we can re- dramatically reduce uh, incidence of a cholera, I think that will be a, a big win and something you know that's you know beyond business, just a, a legacy standpoint. You, you know that's you know that's like life changing, right? Legacy building that you know we're literally changing the quality of life and, and health outcomes in a region. And so that's something we're very excited about. We know it's going to take time. Everything always takes longer than you want it to, yeah. but we're we're committed to to being in Congo and to not only ensuring economic prosperity but also improving you know quality of life. Jim, thank you so much for taking time to chat with me. This has been such a fun conversation and I learned so much from you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very flattered and I'm I'm grateful you thought to invite me on this platform. Big fan of it. Thanks. That was Jim Nuoklay of Mighty Peace Coffee. We mentioned a lot of the pieces that Jim has written in this episode, which you should absolutely read. You can find his work at Fresh Cup Magazine, which is the publication that I'm currently the editor of. And you can also find his work at Daily Coffee News. And you can find out more about Mighty Peace Coffee by visiting MightyPeaceCoffee.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in two weeks. I'm just looking for a better day.
Boss Barista is produced by me, Ashley Rodriguez. You can find a transcription of this episode on my newsletter, along with an accompanying article about this episode every Thursday at bossbarista.substack.com. To support the show, you can visit www.patreon.com slash bossbarista. We have over 80 patrons supporting the show right now, which is incredible. And that helps keep the show alive. We pay guests through this fund, we pay for website hosting, and we make donations. Half of our patron donations are currently pledged to five different nonprofits, each at $50 a month. Asada's Daughters, the Loveland Foundation, the Native American Rights Fund, the Grocery Run Club, and the Chicago Community Bond Fund. Again, if you want to support Boss Barista, consider making a monthly donation at www.patreon.com slash bossbarista. Another amazing way to support the show is to share this episode with just one person, a friend, someone who you think would learn something from this episode, anybody. Sharing on social media is also a huge help, along with giving us a five-star review on Apple iTunes. As a small production, these things matter a lot. So if you can take a little time, share out some of your favorite quotes from this episode, and tag us. That would be amazing. We're at Boss Barista Podcast on Instagram and Boss underscore Barista on Twitter. You can also send me an email at bossbaristapodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week.